The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, sorry, I have to work these in. Welcome to the number one books podcast in Croatia. Thank you very much to all of our Croatian literature friends. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. I'm not just talking to our Croatian literature friends now, but to everyone. I am an international host here for everyone around the world, across the universe. We have a great episode today, a new biography of John Milton has arrived on our shelves, and I know what you're probably thinking. Wow, John Milton, big, weighty subject. Probably a march through his life. Here's what Milton's great-grandparents did. Chapter 2, grandparents. Chapter 3, parents. And you thinking, my goodness, a lot of fishmongers and washerwomen and land tenancies and brushes with court records and births and baptisms, and where is our poet in all of this? Milton is obviously accomplished. He's sneaky good as a poet. Paradise Lost is a tour de force, and the other works are good too. He had a fascinating life, but really, do I want a dull tome full of the this and that of his life? Do I need another cuboid on my shelf? And then you see that I have a biographer on here, and you think, Oh, Jack's going to ask, as Edward Gibbon's publisher did when Gibbon dropped off hundreds more pages of his work. The decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Oh, well, it's scribble, 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 eh, Mr. Gibbon? Scribble, 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 eh, Mr. Biographer of John Milton? Well, put all those thoughts aside. That will seem like a dystopia compared with what we have here today. This book is not like that. Not like that at all. It's much more personal. It's much more the story of John Milton, fascinating poet, but also... Joe Moshenska, a brilliant scholar who's a bit surprised by his own fascination with Milton. Why John Milton? Is usually the first question that someone in my position asks someone in Professor Moshenska's position. A preliminary question to touch upon and quickly speed past. A table-setting question. Here, it's more like a meal. The whole meal, not just the appetizer. The whole book in some sense, is a great grappling with that question. What is it about this guy, this poet, this person, this poetry? Why John Milton? Adam Phillips says, quote, Moshenska has written a new kind of literary biography, at once glancingly a memoir, a rivetingly informative biography, and a fascinating reading of Milton as poet, scholar, and ordinary man in his everyday life. This book is an illumination. Milton and everything and everybody around him are seen in a quite different, intriguing light. End quote. Who loves John Milton? Well, who has loved him? Borges, Virginia Woolf, the founding fathers, revolutionaries all over the world, Thomas Hardy, William Wordsworth. Pretty good company there. Pretty good collection. If that group of people, if they're having a club, count me in. 
And there's one more that I think I will leave for a surprise because it comes up during our conversation. A very good recommendation for reading John Milton. And then there are the people who you think should like him, fans of poetry and Christianity, not necessarily in that order. Those people are not always his greatest promoters. Dr. Johnson had an uneasy admiration for Milton. The church has been divided. So we have done an episode on John Milton in the past. It's episode number 154, way back in August of 2018. I think the facts are still good if you want to check that one out. So I won't go through a whole introduction to John Milton here other than a quick reminder when he was born and so on. He was of that era right behind Shakespeare. In fact, one of his earliest claims to fame, fame with an asterisk, was as a poet, was his poem about Shakespeare, which was included in the second folio of Shakespeare's plays in 1632, when Milton was 24 years old. The reason why I said there's an asterisk is because the poem was included anonymously. But Milton would not remain anonymous for long. So, that orients us in our timeline. Milton was born in 1608, when Shakespeare was in his 40s. Their lives overlapped for about five years. Five years when the two greatest writers ever in English, perhaps, were both walking the same planet. Although, for half of those years, Milton probably wasn't walking much. He was at least crawling. You know what I mean. He was, in his earliest years as a poet, writing shorter poems and translating works. Save that thought for a moment. His early works, I'll get back to it. Throughout his life... He was a man of opinions and action. He wrote impassioned pamphlets arguing for freedom of speech and freedom of the press. He traveled around Europe, Paris, Florence, Rome, Naples, and civil war broke out in England. He came back to England and wound up in the thick of it. The church was the focus of the turmoil, and Milton jumped in, so to speak, arguing in favor of divorce. He became aligned with the cause of Parliament, and he wound up working for Cromwell and defending Republican principles. He was a foe of the king and of monarchy, and he held to those beliefs even after the restoration of the king. He was imprisoned when he was in his 50s for this, and yet he was still writing prose works, still writing essays and screeds, urging his countrymen to be better, less hypocritical, more logical, more principled. And at the same time, he was writing his poetry. His epic works that today stand up as some of the greatest poetry ever written by anyone, anywhere. Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistes. Oh, and he had gone blind, as if all that weren't enough. He did all of that in his later years, all that epic poetry writing, without his eyesight. An incredible life, and we've just scratched the surface, and I encourage you all to seek out the earlier episode we did on Milton for a bit of a deeper dive, and even better, seek out this biography called Making Darkness Light, A Life of John Milton. After this episode, after you listen to this, this conversation with the biographer, that's the best way to learn more about this amazing figure and to project yourself in there a little bit too. That's the good thing about writers or historical figures who aren't easy to pin down. There's room for you to figure out what you think. Where do you stand? What did he say that you admire? Where do you agree or disagree? How did he live? How did he think? How did he get all this done? What drove him? 
Does the same thing drive you? Are you motivated by his motivations? And what does any of that tell you about what it's like to be alive, to be alive in a time of crisis, to respond to that crisis? That's our story for today. And it's the story of this book in front of me. We'll talk to the author of that book, Joe Mashenska, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Joe Moshenska, professor of English at the University of Oxford. He's here today to talk about his new book, Making Darkness Light, a biography of 17th century poet John Milton. Professor Moshenska, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, very glad to be here. So I can't remember where I first heard this or read this, but when I was in college, I remember it was generally asserted that the three greatest poets in the English language were Shakespeare, Milton, and Wordsworth in that order— I feel like Milton has always been respected and admired, but lots of people think he's unlovable or maybe unreadable. So I'm looking forward to exploring those myths with you today. But why don't we start with you? Where were you in life when you discovered John Milton's poetry? The first time I remember reading him was when I studied him in school, which is, I think, probably fairly common these days. I think most people are are assigned Milton's poetry mm-hmm. some form right. rather than picking it up from choice. So I'd have been probably 17 or so and was studying English um, at school and we did the first two books of Paradise Lost. Uh-huh. So he was, a, he was a name in the way, in exactly the way that you described, the kind of person you encounter on lists of great poets mm-hmm. and have some vague sense that you should, that you should read. Yeah. But he wasn't someone I think I'd ever sat down and read until we did those two books. Yeah. And when you first encountered it, were you drawn to it immediately? Was there something in there that was speaking to you? I think I, I read it at what was in many ways a very good moment, less to do at that time with my specific response to him. But I was just discovering that I really loved studying literature. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'd been very unhappy in English classes and generally at school till I was about 16 and then moved to... Um, the way the system works in the UK is you often move to a different school for the last two years of what would be high school. And I moved and and was suddenly had a wonderful teacher and really, and until then my experience of studying books 
in school had pretty much been that I would enjoy reading them by myself. And then the experience in class was having them slowly sort of murdered for me. Yeah. And so <laughs> I was, I was finally, at a, I had, you know, I had this sort of wonderful year of realizing, wow, actually slowing down and being taught things and talking to other people about these books can actually bring them to life and make you see things in them that you didn't know were there. And so I think that made me enjoy Milton a lot because I was just in this state of excitement and, in th and sort of newfound enthusiasm. But I don't think it spoke to me in a deep way until a bit later, probably. But, but that was my first taste and it was, it was a good one. Yeah. What was it that resonated with you later? I think I found myself more sort of interested in the strangeness of it and the yeah. ways in which it's, it's not sort of immediately, I think neither Milton nor his poetry strike you immediately as terribly human uh, in some of the ways that you were, that you were describing. I mean, he's kind of, as you say, often mentioned as a great, revered as a great, but he's not someone people still, I think, often talk about with a great deal of affection or something I found while I was working on this book is I would mention to people, I'm working on a book on Milton and they'd have a slightly kind of guilty response of like, oh, I've always felt like I should have read yes. Paradise Lost or, right. oh, I studied it a bit in school or college, but I can't really remember it. And there was this feeling of they've been caught out in some way. Whereas if you tell people you teach Shakespeare or something, I think there's much more about, oh, I saw this great production or I love doing this play at school or something. People kind of light up in a slightly different way. Yeah. And so for me, it was about... I guess ultimately not not completely overturning that you know I, I am very engaged with Milton as a person and as a writer I'm still not sure I straightforwardly like him or warm to him but I think I had to learn to find the things that were strange and and challenging about it to be really fascinating rather than off-putting. Yeah I, I'm so curious about why that is I think that's that's totally right people think of Paradise Lost or is it because he's so good that they think he's kind of perfect and, and never makes a mistake and, and the poetry ends up being sterile? You know, why is it that people will plunge into Keats or or other poets who are just as challenging but find that they are at home there and that there's something there that really speaks to them? And then they, when it comes to Milton, I don't know if they've never given him a try or if their initial encounter with him has, has put them off, but they... They almost seem like it's just medicine and there's nothing in there that anyone would actually want to read. Exactly. Something that you should sort of subject yourself to because it's improving or um, because it will impress people if you tell them you've read Paradise Lost from start to finish or something like that, but not. not. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and the other part, the, the, the other side of that, I think, is, is this feeling that you need to know a lot to understand mm. Milton. And that's, again, probably something that I think distinguishes him at first glance from from Shakespeare and Wordsworth, where you might need, you know, there is a feeling that you need, that you you can need lots of knowledge if you really want to understand the finer points of a Shakespeare play, but also a feeling that you can kind of enjoy it on the level of plot and character. You can let some of the more obscure moments kind of wash over you a bit. Whereas with Milton, there's, there's the feeling that you just need to know stuff. You need to kind of, you, you need to educate yourself. You know, if you don't know classical literature and the bible and the politics mm. of the time and all these kind of things and the way i've ended up feeling about that is on is on the one hand it you know it's kind of true there are things you you you, you do at some point need to equip yourself with to, to understand certain parts of it but i think also there's a risk in doing that which is saying to yourself if i know enough 
this will stop seeming difficult and strange and I'll be able to understand it and make sense of it. And there's a side of Milton, I think, who believed that and a side of him that wants us as readers to believe that. But there is another side of him that, that as I said, wants to kind of be and, and remain strange and do strange things to us through the writing. And, and if you treat him like a puzzle to be solved with sufficient knowledge, you actually lose something in the, in the kind of weirdness. And, you know, when you read him, I think the things that people find off-putting you know, I found myself comparing them in my mind sometimes to interesting experiences I've had in in art galleries, looking at really strange pieces of like modern conceptual art. Mm. The kind of things where you find yourself in front of something and think, "What am I supposed to do with this?" You know, "What am I?" Someone's made this bizarre thing, and here I am. I'm not sure what to think. I'm not sure what to feel. And that can kind of that can be at times a frustrating experience, and it can be at times an extraordinary one. And I think you need a bit of the willingness to do that with Milton to say, "This doesn't sound like anyone else. This isn't like any other English I've encountered." I'm, I might need to disentangle it a bit and look up some words and look up some references, but I also need to just kind of hear it and feel it and allow the kind of contortion of it to do weird things to me first. And that's, I think, the bit that people maybe skip over or, or are made to skip over because they're, they're told that it's just something hard and, and virtuous. Right. I wonder, too, if because the poem that he's most famous for, Paradise Lost, is so long and because it's it's explicitly Christian, if people feel like it's going to be preachy or it's going to be sort of an extended sermon. And I was interested in in going through the introduction to your book to learn not only that you're not uh, of a Christian background, but that Christians haven't always revered Milton. And he's been uh, sort of, uh, he's he's kind of a hard guy to pin down in terms of his theology or what exactly he believed. Absolutely. No, you're, you're exactly right. It's one of the kind of ironies of it is that for understandable reasons, because of the, you know, the, the subject matter of, you know, of, of that there's paradise lost, there's paradise regained. There's numerous poems on the life of Christ that he writes. He is certainly the greatest Christian poet in the history of English on one level. But as you say, I actually find that the challenge now of teaching him, is that I think he, he? I think there's a, some some people when I teach him, some students have a feeling that oh, I won't understand this because I don't have a Christian background. But there have been times where I've had Christian students who, or students with some kind of background, or you know whether or, um, whether or not they have a sort of faith of their own, but they kind of are in a different way baffled because this doesn't look like Christianity in, in anything like the form they've encountered it. He had one of the most completely idiosyncratic theological positions he, of anyone of anyone ever almost you know he he i think he had this kind of this kind of mind that could only believe in things or or commit to things if he kind of reinvented them for himself so mm. he was a sort of he was he he was always torn in throughout his life i think between wanting to be part of some larger group or community whether that be national or religious or poetic and on the other hand this deep feeling of being idiosyncratic and unique and individual and that led him to completely refashioned Christianity. So by the end of his life, he doesn't believe in the Trinity, mm. which is one of the most dangerous things you can do in the 17th century. Anti-Trinitarianism was seen as tantamount to atheism. It was like denying the existence of God altogether. So he thought that the Son was not the same as the Father, was not eternal, had been created later and in time. And these these might seem like, or they can seem like slightly dry speculative topics to us, but these were massively charged with with philosophical and, and also political implications at the time. So that he was really playing with some very dangerous ideas. So so in the same way that I think opening his poetry sort of changes your sense of what of what language can do, what what a poet 
looks like, what a poem looks like. In the same way, I think what I found really fascinating about spending time with his religion over the years is it's it's not just about learning something about the history of a, of a particular faith or of a particular doctrine, but of changing your sense of what it means to be a religious person or a religious writer or to hold a particular set of beliefs. Right. And if it's attempting to convey something that he's receiving as doctrine, I'm less interested than if it's him trying to work out a doctrine for himself. And it sounds like the latter is closer to how you would view his poetry. Absolutely. And that even links in a funny way. You know, you you mentioned the length of Paradise Lost, which is obviously one of the things that challenges people. One thing I find really, really interesting, and again, there's a lot of variety into these days, of course, in terms of how familiar people tend to be with the text of the Bible itself. But it's really interesting just to go back and read the opening chapters of Genesis. And one thing, again, I find students and other people I've talked to about this often are surprised by when they do that is just how little is in there. You know, mm, we often grow right. up with these versions of the Bible stories and then we turn to the Bible itself, and and a lot of it's you know cobbled together from apocryphal books or from later versions. You know, there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that the snake is Satan. There are all kind, you know, there are so many so many things we we take as read that are just not there. And if you read this story, which is full of gaps and half suggestions and 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 hints, and then you think, how do you tell the story? How do you fill in these gaps? That he he actually had this extraordinary kind of kind of palette on which to paint but that really does give you huge scope for invention you know it's not like there is just a story there to be retold if you want to turn that into a detailed compelling psychologically engaging story you are going to have to do a lot of invention and elaboration so um so you sort of need to be willing to to sort of forge a religion for yourself because because that work needs to be done right okay so we we just when you were saying that I was chuckling because we just did an episode with the author and translator Stephen Mitchell who's written a book about the nativity story and huh. it had this a similar kind of thing that there is so much that we take for granted about you know what happened in that manger and in that right. stable and and all of that that just is not there and it's become yeah. you know there is no little drummer boy and there is no little there's all kinds of things that we've just uh added on to it and stripping it down and and just reading it for what it is and then kind of seeing how you can fill in gaps because things have to make a logical sense or because there are allusions to it but it is kind of a fascinating fascinating way to understand the bible especially if you're trying to develop a religion or a religious understanding out of it. Absolutely. And that sounds like a fascinating book. And one of the, this is something I, I keep coming back to. Again, one of the, the interesting things about spending a lot of time thinking about the history of religion and religious literature as a, as a non-religious person or not, you know, is that just to kind of encounter what an amazing, especially I think for people like Milton and people in his age who are so committed to a conception of the Bible as the literal word of God, that if you then take that thought into the Bible and read this extraordinarily very kind of mishmash of stories and and catalogues and it's just such a it's it, you know slightly would have at the time been a slightly kind of heretical thing to say but it's such a bizarre mishmash of a book the bible mm, right you, it's the kind of mental gymnastics you need to uh, undergo if you say i am committed to taking this deeply strange thing as the literal and absolute truth what a curious way to then have to think and to live your life and the way in which and, and what you'll have to do to fill those gaps to join those dots to make things make sense and so i, I feel like it, you know it has something to tell us about about the way that we 
I mean, that, you know, there's also something interesting, right, in the way that something like the nativity story solidifies. There's a temptation to have a, a kind of reassuring, familiar story. But it's really fascinating to kind of complement that with a sense of things as much more uncertain and 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 sort of up for grabs mm. and, to th- and to think about the kinds of creative work we have to do with a book in order to make it make sense for us. Right. Okay, so let's talk about your book and the genesis of that. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, so what story needed to be told? What What was your approach to writing this book about John Milton? I might answer that, first of all, in a slightly negative way, which is to say that, in a sense, the story that didn't need telling mm. was... This was the straightforward narrative of John Milton's life. I mean, mm-hmm. there have been plenty of biographies of Milton already by the 18th century. Samuel Johnson is worrying that there have been too many lives yeah, of Milton right. already, which is kind of amazing to think that all yeah. people people were feeling that even then. And you know, there are there there are still new things coming to light about him, but there's but but by and large, the information has been well poured over. There are some, you know, there are there are really good books if you want a kind of cradle to grave life of Milton. And for a writer, he had he had a very interesting and a very public life, and and I mean, he's he, you Absolutely. can see why biographers were drawn to him because it's not just a uh, you know forty years of uh, sitting at a typewriter or you know with a quill Absolutely. in hand, but that he was active and engaged, and then he he when he went blind, and I mean, there was a lot of. Things Absolutely. to recommend him and his life. Indeed, yeah, lots of lots of compelling things. A very interesting private life. A very you know with you know multiple wives and catastrophic fallings out with one of them who f- flees from the family home a few weeks after the wedding, and then right. he works for the Cromwellian government. He said he goes blind. He's a kind of one man foreign office for the yeah. Cromwellian government, translating letters in and out of um, Latin. Goes to hiding at the restoration. All these all these amazing things. So yeah, it, it is an amazing life, and and also, and, and so a, I mean, uh, uh, the the contrast with Shakespeare that you drew, which is the one that people understandably also drew, and Milton himself sort of started this in some way. It's also interesting here because we know a lot more about Milton than we know about Shakespeare, partly for documentary reasons, but also because Milton, the, you know, the the sort of biggest contrast between them, which goes back to what we were talking about before, is that Milton is always telling you who he is and what he thinks. Hmm. He is he is in his poems as a version of his of his actual historical being in a way that Shakespeare is always kind of dissolving himself into his figures into his characters you know you're you're never you're always tempted to identify what they're saying with what he thinks but it's ultimately impossible. So in some ways Milton you know one of the reasons Milton has been so so much biographized is because it, as you say it's a compelling and 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 eventful life but it's also because he seems in one way like the kind of perfect subject for a literary biography because he is in the poems the life is in the poems lots of the specific historical things that he lived through are uh, reflected or refracted through the poems so he seems like a kind of dream for a biographer and in one sense he is but one of my starting points i guess was a feeling that my my sort of journey to becoming really fascinating, really fascinated with him had not been a smooth or straightforward one. I was slightly surprised mm. that I found myself spending so much time with this man and his writings, teaching his work, writing about him. And that my feelings about that, my experiences of doing that over the years were much more sort of contorted and paradoxical than straightforward, you know, this guy's important, here's what you need to know about him. Mm-hmm. And and also a constant feeling that the, that while he is powerfully present and and himself in one way in the poems, that also he was he he became more and more fascinating to me as a kind of contradictory figure or a figure who had multiple sort of aspects or features of his personality that he was struggling to reconcile within the same space and i actually felt like that's what i was loving about the reading was not this fact this sense that i could extract 
a clear Milton from them, which is the kind of biographical fantasy, but rather that I was constantly, as I read and thought about him, sort of wrestling with who he was and who he was in his poems. And and they were becoming an interesting sort of part of my of, of me, of my life, of my way of thinking about the past and about the present. And so I thought, well, you know, there might be a way of writing Milton's life, which is a biography, which does follow the chronology in some ways, but which takes as its as its sort of guiding principle, a set of questions about what it means to live with someone's writing. So it's about Milton in his times, but it's also about time with Milton and how how his life and his works have sort of shaped my experience of various things. And so um, mm. it's a book about about his life, about to, to some extent about my life, and also but 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 also about the life of the poems and the way that the poems only come to life by being read and and transformed by people now in the present. Mm. So it's almost like he's he's the rare poet where you could say he would be you could write an interesting biography of him even if he had never written a line of poetry. And what you seem to be saying is he's so interesting as a poet that even if all this other stuff hadn't happened to him, he would still be an interesting figure to be wrestling with and examining and analyzing and trying to to uh, adapt him or understand him in our own age, even in spite of his politics and his sort of the the public figure aspects of him. Yeah, maybe because those exactly maybe because those two sort of poles of literary biography, the life and the work are so are so extremely interesting with, with yeah, Milton yeah. Um, that, it, that it almost <laughs> becomes an opportunity to to sort of play with that relationship a bit. Because I think you're right, they they could each stand alone. But, but that also um, means that he presents a particularly... It's almost impossible when, when, thinking, about, when, when thinking about Milton and biography to not fall into the biographer's trap, or at least the literary biographer's trap, which is saying... Which is the trap of, of explaining away the work mm. rather than trying to really talk about it, it, it it's right. so hard to avoid that to say because these exciting things happen in, in this moment or because these complicated things happen at this moment that's why we have the poem that we have right and that for me is is the thing that i was always trying to kind of hold at bay of thinking well i you know yes you try and understand more and more about something but i suppose i this is probably just that on some level you know fascinated though i am by biography and by history i'm i'm probably i i, I do still have a kind of a sort of slightly, a sort of slightly mystical version of the of the poems that they they are ultimately inexplicable, right? The, 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 right? the great works of art, you can you can surround them with all kinds of interesting corroborating evidence or or suggestions of of what led to them being the way they are, but they're never going to be explicable. Um, and so, what I wanted to do was was find a way of bringing the life and the poems together, but that kind of respected that that inexplicableness and and therefore tried to talk. Or, or try to show it by saying, "Here's what spending the spending time with these works has actually meant to me." And in a way, one of the things I try and do in the book is think about about poems as sort of machines for transforming time. Right? That's what we don't often think about or talk explicitly about the time we spend with a with, you know with something we're reading. That's just seen as a kind of incidental or contingent part of it. But actually, it seems to me like there are a whole set of very practical questions. How quickly do you read something? Where do you read it? These are all sort of inescapable ones, right? They're kind of wired into the experience of reading. And so I think once you start to think about poems as things that that, that operate in time, that do things to us in and through time, then I think you can find a new way of bringing together the time of a life and the time of a, of a work and the time of reading. And, the, and, and the, my book's an attempt to, to, to do biography 
I think somewhat differently as a, as a place where those different strands of time can kind of interweave and, and touch one another and hopefully trigger off some new associations in the process. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with Joe Moshenska and our talk about John Milton. Okay, brief interlude here. The introduction to John Milton that Joel recommends is a poem called On the Morning of Christ's Nativity. It gives you a sense of that visionary quality. It's intelligence, but it's a wilder intelligence than you might expect from our poet. We talked about this with Stephen Mitchell a little bit, how compressed the actual narrative of the nativity is in the Bible. There are only a handful of facts or factual details, and we have added to them over the centuries, embroidered new threads into that narrative. So we have a version in our mind that is only hinted at in the Bible, just a few details that we've turned into a full picture, a full tapestry in our mental picture of what happened. So Milton has a full picture in his mind, but it's pretty wild. It's not the project of Stephen Mitchell who said, well, we know there's an inn, so there must have been an innkeeper. Let's use our powers of empathy and inhabit that person's mind. What would he have been thinking in that context, faced with that scenario? Milton imagines his way into the world too, but on a more cosmic scale. The level of good versus evil. He says, look at this, it's a world of pagan gods, and nature is supreme. There hasn't been God, the God, on earth before in quite this way. This deity who created light itself is now coming down in the form of this baby. This is more than just a baby with a mother in a stable. This is like, in modern terms, we might say it's like splitting the atom. That's the kind of power and explosiveness and transformation and unleashed energy we're talking about here. This is a giant volcano going off on the ocean floor, an earthquake, a shivering of space and time itself. This is the streams being crossed. Christ in the manger. Kaboom, people. So much for your silent night. This isn't calm. You think the pagan gods just vanish silently? Think they'll just disappear, pick up their things and go home? Not if they're real. And even if you think they're not real, even if they're only in the minds of people, do you think that they just slip away? People hold fast to their beliefs. And here we are with this baby in the manger. We are about to unleash huge elemental forces, wars, religions, power surges, ebbs and flows. Get ready, world. Take a deep breath. Maybe this is a silent night. Maybe this is your last silent night. Take a deep breath. We have a savior, but holy smokes, we will also have a life of that savior and a betrayal and a crucifixion and a resurrection, and that is just the beginning. We will also have centuries of Christians hiding in basements and being fed to gladiators and persecutions of those Christians And then their triumph and crusades and warring with one another and deep devotion and faith and doubt and mercy and fear. It's like the sun itself will change the moon and the stars. It's all different now. 
humans are going to be different on this earth. You can hardly imagine a bigger and more dramatic scale for what John Milton saw. And the hinge, the pivot point, the turn was there on that morning, the morning of Christ's nativity. If this is where your mind wants to roam, if you want to explore this kind of raw and fevered power, Milton is your man. Read this poem, read his other works. But first, listen to the second half of our conversation with John Milton's biographer, Joe Moshenska, after this. Okay, we are back. So I've talked about the facts of Milton's life on the podcast before, but I'm not sure I ever really captured his personality. And we've we've touched on it a little bit here today that he's he's intellectually independent, or he's he's kind of stubborn, and he's uh, an independent thinker. Let's say, but do we know much about what he was like in in daily life? What kind of a person was he? He probably was. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I think though I think that quite a lot of the of the accounts of him do make him sound like he wasn't a lot of fun a lot of the time. It's a it's a it's a tricky one to handle because I think it's very easy to kind of caricature him as many people have over the centuries as the kind of quintessentially dour and grim austere. Puritan. Yeah, austere exactly. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I mentioned briefly before that he has this disastrous first marriage when he's in his thirties and his wife is a teenager. And he treats her very badly, and she goes back to live to live with her family, and says she can't live with him. I think I think you also get sort of glimpses of other of other sides of him, sides that are much more open to um, to kinds of well pleasure and enjoyment among other things. I mean, one thing I bring out in the book, uh, especially at the beginning, is his love of music throughout his life. So his father was a very mm. talented amateur musician, and you get these accounts of him later in life as well, enjoying singing and playing. And um, but but I suppose what. What interests me about him is the is that the I think there there is as I say I'm sure a, a great degree of truth to the more dour and dour and austere version of him, but I think even when that's what he was kind of trying to do or be, I think you that, that there's a sense of kind of multiple things being being held in tension at once. So there's there's a version of him that I think sort of aspires to a lot of control, control over the people around him, control over his poetry, control perhaps over his reader who is supposed to think and and, and experience what he wants them to think and experience. Hmm. But I actually came to feel, and this is one of the things I wanted to bring through in the book, that that's always kind of tempered, or perhaps the other side of that desire for control is, is actually a feeling of not being in control, of being kind of sp- almost spoken through or acted through by by these sort of divine forces or by things that, he, or, you know, or by his deepest convictions. And, you know, there's this other side to Milton that's almost a kind of medium, you know, someone who's incredibly sensitive to the, to, to what's around him. I find myself getting really fascinated by these strange passing details you get in the early lives of him. So for example, I mentioned his love of music. There's a suggestion that even before he's blind, he's incredibly sensitive to, to, to sound. And at one point in his life, 
um, finds somewhere very quiet to live in London because he can't bear the background noise from the streets. Mm. So again, you you can take from that this sense of someone who again wants to kind of cloister himself away or, or shut himself off from the world. But I also think there is something, gen- you know, there's a re- really interesting kernel there of someone who is sort of hypersensitive, who, who, who registers everything from the world around him in this kind of super intense way and is and and is trying to sort of find ways of channeling that and making and and make sense of it so would i want to live with milton absolutely not but from afar and and over the distance of several (laughs) centuries i think there's a lot to be fascinated about in a character that's that's really at odds with itself in certain ways yeah why was he writing poetry what he seems like I don't always get the sense that he was eager to please the way some poets are or looking for praise or looking to to delight or entertain, but that he was in a dialogue. Uh, I don't know if it was with himself or with God or what it is exactly that he... Why is he putting words down on the page? It's a good question and, and one that he wrestles with. And, and certainly in his early life, you know, he, he, he emerges from university and all he's Specifically, I mean, he's learned a lot about a lot of different topics, but what what he's also learned is that he doesn't want to be a priest, a lawyer, or a doctor, which are the main three vocations for which university was supposed to prepare you if you weren't a member of the aristocracy. What he thinks he wants to be is a poet, but that there that that isn't a job, right? <laughs> that that yeah. isn't a vocation. You, know, you can't just you know it, it's generally still a pursuit that you would that you would you know you could be a professional dramatist or you could be a sort of you know if you're rich you can be a, a poet on the side and that kind of thing. But so he is kind of baffled by this, and 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 his parents are as well. And he and he spends a long time just kind of you know reading and living off his parents and trying to work out what he wants to to do and to write. One of the other things about his career that's very interesting is it's very uneven, very non-linear. So he does write a lot, but it happens in these kind of bursts. Right. And there are various points where he gives up the writing of poetry, especially when he's working for the Cromwellian government. He basically decides to to sort of give up on what he believes is his true vocation in order to serve this what he believes is this kind of godly government that's gonna that, that's going to sort of form a, a, a sort of pious republic in England so he has a whole a whole decade really where he barely writes any poetry apart from a couple of of sonnets so again going back to what I was saying about him struggling part of what interests me is a, about him as a poet is he was struggling with that for his, through his whole life the question, why am I writing and for whom am I writing? Those questions were never far away from his mind. Mm. I think at times he allows himself the most, the, the, the sort of wildest fantasies that actually his his writings are going to contribute to the bringing about of this, you know, of this kind of, you know, of the world that he dreams of, of this, mm. kind of, this kind of perfect, virtuous, pious world, and that actually his poems could sort of actually create the kind of reader that he fantasizes about. Yeah. But, but at times, but I think at plenty of other times, he, he realizes that that is a fantasy. And he, he famously writes in Paradise Lost about, you know, by which point his, his, his political dreams have all come to nothing. He famously writes in that, in that poem about having fit audience, though few. Um, yeah. So he is already anticipating <laughs> this as a kind of, you know, his, his biggest utopian dreams have already, have already withered. So I think, um, again, if you, if you read across the range of his poems, part of what's really interesting about them to me is you can see almost the whole set of ways that one might imagine oneself as a poet or you know there are there are some that are very directly addressing the parliament or directly addressing Cromwell hoping to actually intervene change intervene and change things very directly there are others that are much more withdrawn from the world and much more for um, for himself or from a smaller group or a particular friend um, but it's again it's the it's the insistent and and sort of impassioned asking of that question, I think is part of what I find really exciting about reading. Yeah, there's a, you just reminded me of a quote I have here where he had watched some of his fellow students 
who were doing some kind of comedic performance, and he said, quote, they thought themselves gallant men, and I thought them fools. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Which, uh, it's funny that he was such a, uh, you know, he, he had so much praise for Shakespeare, and it seems like playwriting was not really something that was in his sphere of things that he might try when he came out of school. No, well, he wrote two masks, which is to say performances that were the worst stage and performed, but those were private performances by aristocratic families. Mm. And he toyed with the idea of writing drama. So Paradise Lost begins, the first idea he has for Paradise Lost is, is as a drama. And, he, and there's an amazing pay, a few pages in um, a document no, known as the Trinity Notebook, because it's in Trinity College, um, which um, contains his a lot of drafts of his poems, but also his working, it's kind of his notebook, his sort of ideas for things he might want to write. And has all these amazing lists of possibilities of, of dramas drawing from the Bible that he that he was interested in doing. But that would have meant sort of reinventing a version of sacred drama. He's absolutely not thinking about becoming a commercial a commercial playwright. Um, although his father was involved in the London theatre world as an investor, and mm. Milton's first first published poem is the poem in in memory of Shakespeare, which is published at the start of Shakespeare's works right. but i think being a being a commercial playwright would have been absolutely below him you know, that's not yeah. something i've ever considered doing <laughs> but it is interesting that he's thinking about theater his whole life he's thinking about how theaters impact upon their audience and it, and it, it, it never goes away as a possible model for how a writer could affect people yeah you mentioned a friend does it seem like he was writing for a handful of people or a, a very elite group of fellow scholars and maybe thinking well it's it's us and then there's the masses who aren't going to get it or maybe we can improve them but they're they need to be brought up to our level or does it seem like he's just on his own thinking i nobody's getting this or nobody is I need to explain this to everyone because I am alone. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think I think again he sort of veers veers between these positions across the course of his life. He he has one incredibly close friendship um from his school days and then through to his um his post university days with a man called Charles Diodati, who dies when they're both quite young. And that I think is the is that's the one really the one relationship from Milton's life, apart from possibly his relationship with his father, that, that you look at and just see love, really. Mm. It's just kind of, um, that's, the, that, that's the one, I think, deeply human relationship that you can, even though most of their surviving exchanges of letters and poems are very mannered and learned, and but there's a real, you real, really sense this kind of sort of personal connection and, and affection. Beyond that, I, and I think he then invests his hope in certain individuals, most of all Cromwell and some of Cromwell's other uh, sort of fellow travellers, um, which are then, again, all, all one by one disappointed, really. So he has times where he, again, sort of fantasises about this kind of godly nation, you know, the idea that the English are going to sort of perfect themselves and having cast off the king, which he thinks is a wonderful thing, that they're going, that, that, that this is just the first step towards becoming this um, perfect republic where where virtue and liberty are going to go hand in hand. He clings on to that idea, but as I said before, in relation to his theology, in in other ways he's pushing always towards a kind of idiosyncrasy that 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 no one could follow and really should follow because in a way his model for a society, which is one that I do kind of find very compelling, is a group that's that's bound together through its idiosyncrasies. So, mm. I mean, this so so in a sense everyone has to be a church of one. Because for Milton, no one should ever accept a belief 
or a position based on someone else's say so or their command. Everything has to be thought through for yourself and and taken on as something that you are committed to, not just something that everyone is committed to. So even the most godly, virtuous society would still um, require of everyone that they undergo a process of making it theirs, of actually working out, you know, what about it? I mean, this is, you know, there are all sorts of caveats to this about, you know, Milton hating Catholics his whole life and thinking that no Catholic could ever be part of a functioning society and this kind of thing. So I'm not suggesting he's some wonderful, tolerant, um, capacious figure, but there is something really compelling to me about that about that notion of, um, uh, yeah, it's it sort of it, a, a funny balance of elitism and, and real openness to possibility. Something like, in practice, almost no one, but in theory, potentially anyone, right? right. Uh, could, could become the kind of ideal. Um, right. Which is, which is the kind of curious mixture of, of optimism and pessimism. So that's, I want to I try to swerve away from this because I'm worried that what, what I've, through my questions, what I'm leaving the listeners with is a feeling of, oh, I'm going to open up John Milton and what I'm going to find there is someone who's thinking, you, you are going to disappoint me as a reader. You are not going to be able to live up to what I need you to be and, and so on. And I, I, I don't know if that's what appeals to you, but it sounds like there's more to it than that. And I'm wondering, what would you say is kind of the right frame of mind or where should readers start? Should they start with Paradise Lost? What should they read? And what kind of approach should they take in order to introduce themselves to Milton? That's a great question. Thank you. Because I wouldn't I wouldn't want to give that impression either. But I also I think it's important on the other side not to kind of um give an give a uh, unrealistically kind of rosy picture right, of, right. of the guy he's been misunderstood. <laughs> uh, but no I right. think I think well that's a great question what they should expect and where to start. I mean I I do think that some of the early writings are perhaps good places to start because, well, partly because they are shorter and take take mm-hmm. less um, massive investment. But I also just think there is something really fascinating about seeing Milton before he's the, right, the author of Paradise Lost, trying to work out who he is and what he's going to do. Yeah. And so probably my favourite two of the early poems, uh, which I kind of base chapters around in the book, are the poem on, on Christ's nativity, the yeah. so-called nativity ode, um, which is just an, ama- an amazing piece of writing and, and again and will have things that that people recognize from the versions of the of the nativity story they may have grown up with but it's kind of eerie and and moving and full of amazing sound and and it's just a kind of wonderful performance um william blake loved it and produced mm. this incredible yeah. set of illustrations which are really worth googling for the poem as well and really bring out something about its kind of haunting qualities and the other one is lycidas a poem he wrote on the death of, of a university acquaintance of his um, when he was, um, which is really to him kind of announcing himself in public as a poet. And again, it's a poem about one man and one man that he might not have known very well. But it's, an, it's just this kind of hallucinogenic meditation on death and, and this set of voices coming in worrying about premature death and how can you commit to a path in life where, you know, things can be, as he puts it, the, um, you know, the, 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 the fury can come and just slit the thread of life with a pair of shears and, you know, everything um, so he's really um, wrestling with some big questions in that poem, but it's an it's an amazing read. And then I would suggest Paradise Lost, but just just start off by doing what I originally did in school: read the first two books, mm. because apart from anything else, he makes the extraordinary decision, which we haven't touched on yet, and is probably the most famous thing about that poem: to start with Satan. So you yeah. begin in, you begin in the middle of the story. You don't begin either at the beginning of creation where the Bible begins with the words in the beginning, nor do you begin perhaps where you might think you would in the garden of Eden with the kind of versions where you begin with Satan and the fallen angels having landed on the floor of hell 
after after being ejected from heaven. Then the first thing you do is join this set of kind of writhing demonic bodies in the dark, struggling with who they are and where they're going and what they're going to do. And it's totally, I think, unexpected as a as a starting point. You know, of all the of, of all the voices and all the kind of forms of consciousness that you could start off with, right? Um, you find yourself somewhere really alien. And and again, what I'd suggest is kind of you know is is try as far as you can to sort of be okay with that alienation. You know, there are bits that are immediately compelling and understandable. There are bits that kind of glide by and are hard to get a handle on. But but try not try not to worry too much about it. The final piece of advice I'd give, so it's become a long answer, but the final thing I'd say is, and this actually fits in with the idea of letting parts of it glide past in the first instance, I'd really suggest if anyone wants to try Paradise Lost that they try listening to it before they read it. Mm. There are some really good audio versions of it read by various actors, and it's, I mean, that's often, you know, it's obviously become a very popular way to experience books of all kinds, but there's something specific here, which is the fact that Milton wrote it while blind. Uh, so he didn't write it. He dictated it. He, yeah. he woke up each morning and dictated the next tranche of it to his to his helper, his scribe. So the poem is heard before it's ever written, and so listening to it feels like it has some kind of connection to the to the process of it being written. And there's something really fascinating about just kind of letting the poem happen to you in that way. And then when you go back and read it, you find things that you remember hearing and um, and experience them in a new way. But I think that's a really good way to get started. Mm. I'm going to add one more. Let me know uh, what you think of this, because one of the things I was struck by as I was getting ready for this show is a person you just touched upon, which is William Blake. And yeah. Blake just revered Milton. And Absolutely. if there's anything that would suggest, you know, that, that the version of, of Milton as being kind of a mouthpiece for conventional doctrine or or a, a stately you know riskless <laughs> kind of yeah. poet uh, who just yeah. marches along cranking out perfect verse and and is is sterile it's the idea of blake uh loving milton and and maybe one thing a reader might try is to read a bunch of blake and then go to milton thinking what is it that Blake found uh, so compelling about Milton? Because Blake is so strange himself and is such a visionary and is so kind of wild that the idea that that Milton was resonating with him just uh, seems like a really uh, interesting recommendation. And I think that's a, I think that's a great point. So to loop right back to your to your first question, or the first thing you said about Milton, this idea of Shakespeare, Milton, Wordsworth mm-hmm. is. You're absolutely right. It's worth remembering that Milton has mattered to, because of, I think, the kind of multifariousness of him, which is the thing I, I really try and bring out in the book and the thing that matters to me about him. There are lots of Miltons. You know, I think the difference, yeah. the other thing that, that distinguishes him from Shakespeare, Wordsworth, other great English poets, Chaucer, you know, great writers, Jane Austen, Dickens, he belongs in that company. But what distinguishes them uh, him from them is that he is that he is the most disagreed about poet in the history of England. Yeah, right. He, he has inspired <laughs> strong and polarized opinions. He's been hated as a person, as a poet. T.S. Eliot thought he destroyed poetry for for a yeah, century after him. Right, right. You know, people have taken issue with his, um, you know, his treatment of women, with his support for republicanism. Lots of things that are worth thinking about and arguing about. But the, but the, the interesting thing about reading Milton and kind of joining the centuries of people who've thought about him is it's not about, you know, you you don't feel that sense of staggering under the burden of hundreds of years of admiration, right? I think, oh, I right. have to like this guy because everyone else always has. He's a kind of, you know, it's a done deal. Instead, yeah. you, you, you join this kind of arena of real argument and contestation. And the sense that now he's become this 
this kind of canonical poet who belongs between Shakespeare and Wordsworth, it's true on, on one level, but you lose something of that sense of, of the much more genuinely troubling and exciting Milton, right? The kind of people, the kind of person people got really irate about, but also the kind of poet that people like Blake loved. And so an alternative poetic lineage to place him in, and he makes just as much sense as he does in the Shakespeare Wordsworth one, is, you know, Milton... Blake, Whitman, Allen Ginsberg, right? I mean, that that kind of line makes just as much sense in terms of kind of, you know, fascinatingly kind of unhinged visionary poetics. And, you know, Whitman loved, you know, really loved Milton as well um, as Blake. And so that, that's, um, I think you learn a lot about people, about writers through their admirers and their detractors. And I think no one has had a more interesting and varied set of admirers and detractors than Milton. So yes, absolutely, Blake is one way in. But the lovely thing about that is you really feel like you are, you know, at times stepping into the middle of a kind of of a of a seething mass of arguments about whether this guy is is extraordinary and wonderful and transformative, or not just boring or or hectic or whatever, but but kind of dangerous, and and that that feels to me like that's exciting. That's a set of debates worth having and much more interesting than someone who is who is um, simply held up as a towering genius. Mm. That was beautifully put. And so I have one last question for you, which is take everything that you just said about the way that he's been received by centuries now of, of poets and readers and admirers and detractors. And imagine that he's here and you're explaining this to him and saying, this is how you've been read. Uh, do you think he would be surprised by this? Or do you think he'd say, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense? <laughs> no, I think I think he I think he'd be I think he would be surprised and resist. I think I think I am, you know, I think I probably am as a as a reader and as a biographer of Milton, I think I perhaps see him as more as more divided against himself than most than, than some of his other biographers have. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that I'm 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 I don't I don't use the language of the of the unconscious and so on because I'm not I'm not importing a particular sort of modern model. But I do think there are things that Milton's that, that Milton was and that his poetry does that he was really aware of and committed to and wanted and desired. I think there are other things that are happening through the poetry or versions of him that come through in it that he would not have liked or accepted. <laughs> you know, so the and even some of the more you know, which I don't I don't mean the necessarily negative things, but you know, as I said, I, I think you can find in Milton really amazing ways of thinking about kind of radical individuality and the set and, and the sense of, you know, each person you know, finding a position for themselves and thinking, you know, and and coming to commitments for themselves. Milton, as I said, was committed to that, but really only for Protestant, well, for particular kinds of English Protestant men, by and large, right? And so I think, I think he would probably resist some of those, some of the extrapolations of his thought, but that doesn't mean, you know, I don't think that means it's not there. I don't, I, I think, I think, I think, you know, one of the ways that a great writer's work becomes great is I think having, is that it kind of ripples with implications that go far beyond anything that they could have imagined. So I think he'd have disagreed with lots of things <laughs> that I find in him. But I think if he agreed with it, you know, I think if everything in his work was stuff that he would, that, that he would, fully endorsed, then he wouldn't be worth reading. Right. Well, you were too modest to say it, but I will say that one other wonderful way to be introduced to Milton would be to start with your book, which is called Making Darkness Light, A Life of John Milton. Professor Joe Moshenska, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Joe Moshenska for serving as our guide today. What a great book. 
And what a great poet, making darkness light, a life of John Milton. My thanks also to Croatia for making us the number one book podcast in that country. And for those of you knocking on the door, I'm looking at you, Lebanon and Bhutan and Poland, top five in both those places. Let's get over the top and I'll be thanking you soon as well. I'm kidding, of course. I'm very grateful to all of you for putting me in the top five. It's an honor, and I'm flattered and grateful that you have chosen to spend some time with us. And for those of you in those countries where we're not at the top of the charts, a Germany, say, where we peaked at number 18, come on, Germany. Well, no, it's not your fault. I will try to do better. Perhaps you're waiting for Goethe. Rilke the Austrian and Kafka the Czech, both writers in German, were not enough. Rousseau, that's Schweitzer. Is that how you say it? Schweitzer? Schweitzer? I should know since I am one, half one. No good. Even worse, perhaps, you're waiting for Schiller and Goethe and who else? I'm guessing my man Musil would not do it. But Thomas Mann, how many times has Mike talked about him? He was German. We've got Martin Luther on our list and Hermann Hess, if he's not too Swiss. Nietzsche. Hoffman. The Brothers Grimm, Hannah Arendt, Walter Benjamin, Hildegard of Bingen. Okay, okay, I get it. I hear you. There's been some neglect, and that's only a partial list of the Germans. We need to rectify that. I'll get to work. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.